The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I am honored today to welcome back one of my favorite guests, Dr. James Greenblatt. He is a pioneer in the field of integrative medicine. He has treated patients with complex behavioral and mood disorders since 1990. And after receiving his medical degree from George Washington University School of Medicine, Dr. Greenblatt completed his psychiatry residency at George Washington University Medical Center. He has written numerous books. I am sitting here in the studio with his most recent. It's titled Integrative Medicine for Binge Eating, a comprehensive guide to the new Hope model for the elimination of binge eating food cravings. Dr. Greenblatt, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be back. Well, you know, we should probably talk a little bit about how you found the field of psychiatry. Here you are in medical school and you decide, I am going to major in psychiatry. What led you to that decision? Well, I actually started my first year out of medical school in pediatrics. So I did my internship in pediatrics. And I found I was more drawn and more engaged in some of the children who were struggling with getting to school and the stomach aches and the headaches with no medical cause. So I really enjoyed working with the children, working with the families, and shifted to psychiatry. Mm-hmm. Now, in your latest book, which is fascinating from the perspective of looking at individuals in this more holistic fashion, and I love that you've included a registered dietitian in this book. But I always love it when the fields come together and really treat a patient more holistically. But you write in your book that many years ago, a patient by the name of Julie transformed your career. How did she do that? I think as a psychiatrist, like most psychiatrists, we avoided eating disorder, treating anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, as it wasn't one part of our training. We didn't have these quick fixes with medications. And a particular patient ended up in our hospital after a overdose of uh, lethal amounts of benzodiazepines, ended up in the ICU, and was transferred to our hospital. And the reason why she overdosed is she could not stop binging on foods. She's someone who did the drive-throughs at night and binged and then purged at home. And this was happening, um, this was a college student, I think she was just getting into law school, and it really kind of woke me up to, this is not overeating, this is a a serious neurobiological difference, and that kind of really changed my course at the time I was treating anorexia, but I really began to focus on helping binge eating and understanding appetite. Yeah, it's fascinating because, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like just like many other diseases, whether it's heart disease or cancer, we get to that end point by different routes. And so you emphasize in this book how everyone is an individual. And so disordered eating or binge eating, which is a a form of disordered eating, we might get there through different courses. Do you find that there's a formula 
or a very common path or more common path leading to this form of disordered eating? You know, I'm not sure that, that there's a common one. If I started listing it, I probably could name 10 or 15. So the core concepts of all of our work is, as you described, biochemical individuality. So some people can talk about emotional eating and, and stress. Some people can use words like food addiction. Other people have significant family histories, and we know receptors in the brain and chemicals that cause us to be full and hungry, very. And so the causes are so varied, and my goal in writing the book is trying to help people see that some of these causes result in actual neurobiological changes, and perhaps we could address them to provide some hope and support. Yeah, that would be great. I do want to step back and just ask you, who did you write this book for? It was really for the hundreds of patients that have took to the mindful eating, doing the the group therapy, and like so much of their life, felt like a failure because they couldn't do it. The cravings persisted and they were still hungry. So the shame, the humiliation just dug deeper. And uh, again, for the last 16 years, I've been focused on treating eating disorders, both anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating. And I saw these patients at their lowest point, sometimes as the first patient we described it, suicide. So it was really trying to help people who have tried, you know, they just uh, diet and exercise, and it wasn't effective for them not to give up hope. Mm. Well, you mentioned wanting to talk about some of the biochemical mechanisms, and I totally agree. I want to understand this condition more. Let's talk about those. What are the biochemical pathways to binge eating disorder? Well, in the book, I I talk about three what I call physiological mechanisms that might contribute to binge eating. And one is something that I remember learning about in college and MSG, monosodium glutamate. And we think about it as the Chinese restaurant syndrome, but it also has a powerful effect on appetite. That's why they add it to food. Everything tastes good. Mm-hmm. There's some individuals who develop the sensitivity and a craving. So we've had patients, just like the alcoholic, might develop a, a craving for the drink when they drive by the bar. Patients who drive by the Chinese restaurants start craving those foods. So monosodium glutamate is just one of these kind of physiological mechanisms that we talk about. And I think it's simple to eliminate if you understand it. The other common one that is, is certainly out there in the literature that we're all kind of aware of, but for some it's much more powerful, is just refined sugar and the um, addictive qualities that sugar does play for some individuals. And the third mechanism that we talk about, in addition to a host of nutritional deficiencies, that there, there are some individuals that don't, completely break down gluten, the protein in in wheat, gluten we've heard of, and casein, the protein in dairy, completely, and it kind of produces this peptide, this chemical that can be addicting, if you will. The brain sees it like morphine. Hmm. And how common would you say these kinds of metabolic deficiencies or abnormalities are in your client population? 
Well, I think that, again, it varies. So I think it's really important to help our patients or individuals understand that there might be many contributing factors. Right. Some individuals aren't sensitive to MSG. Some people can tolerate sugar, and many people can tolerate dairy and wheat. I'm not a proponent of eliminating dairy and wheat, but there are individuals that have such uh, cravings for dairy and wheat and actual withdrawal reactions if they don't get it that it is something to consider. Right. One of the issues that I think is so important that we don't talk enough about has to do with deprivation. And if you were to turn around and ask me the question, you know, what is a single most important way to help prevent disordered eating? I would have responded to that question by saying, don't diet. And that message is very clear in your book as well, which I was so glad to read. But I think that whenever we set ourselves up for these situations where we're deprived, I think that that often leads to abnormal eating. Tell me your thoughts about that. Absolutely. Sometimes patients that we admit to the hospital, to our treatment programs, with a disordered eating or binge eating, you're absolutely right. They're not eating all day long. And then in the evening, it's, it's quite clear why they're binging. So regular eating is critical. It's part of all our treatment modalities. And that deprivation, as you described it, is such a powerful path towards disordered eating. And you also describe in your book how deprivation actually affects the biochemistry in the brain. And you cite specifically the Ansel Keys experiments, which all dietetic students learn about early on in their education, about just how deprivation affects the brain, where you can go ahead and describe the experiment for us, if you would. Sure. And yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. And I wish psychiatrists got exposed to it, not just students of nutrition and dietetics. But it was an experiment, and so Keyes was a physician, and he was trying to study how to refeed prisoners of war during World War II when they came back because they knew they were starving. And so he had a group of conscience objectors, people who did not want to fight, and they were set up in a, a university, in a lab, and their diet was uh, monitored where they uh, lost weight, so they were restricting their calories. And during the course of their weight loss, and the important thing I think about the study, these were healthy men. That's how you got into the study. And during the course of their weight loss, there were significant symptoms of disordered eating, of depression, of anxiety, and that continued actually during their refeeding process. And it was a very powerful experiment, but what it demonstrated to anyone who looks at it carefully is that restrictive eating and deprivation in healthy individuals have psychological effects. Mm -hmm. If we add genetic liabilities for someone who might have a predisposition to depression, anxiety, and other psychological illnesses, that deprivation and restrictive eating could have more profound effects. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned the prisoners of war. My first job as a dietitian was at a veterans hospital, and I'll never forget a patient I had who was overweight. He had a cardiac event. He was in the cardiac ICU, and the doctor prescribed a 1,200-calorie diet. Being the good young dietitian, I went in to teach him the diet, and he looked at me and he said, lady, I was a prisoner of war, and I'm never going to be hungry again. So 
as practitioners, it was such a great lesson for me because it helped me really understand humanity and how we tend to victimize people or maybe pass judgment on individuals who seem to be out of control or have no willpower because they're overeating. But I think it is our responsibility, not only as healthcare providers, but also as just our fellow citizens, to look at people with a lot more compassion and try to understand how that person became unhealthy or maladjusted in their eating. We just saw that there's been a passage of the restriction of benefits for poor people. And I think about children, especially since you mentioned going into pediatrics at first, how one in five children are living in poverty. And for individuals who are living in a state of deprivation where hunger is the norm, there is a different eating pattern that develops. And you do see more of a hoarding behavior. You see more binge eating when food becomes available. So it's a really complex issue, isn't it? Food certainly cuts across all human issues and, and culture, but poverty in terms of both the quality of food as well as the quantity has profound effects on brain development, brain function, and we're seeing clinically eating disorder behavior. Right. Yeah, it's really tragic. Well, I want to talk about media because you bring that up and how we see thousands of messages a year. In fact, there was some data from the Federal Trade Commission that said that children, again, see more than 5,000 messages per year that promote unhealthy food products. And in 2018, Americans spent more than 11 hours per day consuming media. So as our cell phones have become the norm where everybody's got their head in a screen these days, we are receiving messages and promotional ads for food all the time. And I can only assume that for someone who is prone to disordered eating or binge eating, these constant messages and images of food can't be good. Well, absolutely. We've, we've known for a long time that the higher incidence of screen time and social media affects depression and anxiety. And we also know that the comparison, the ability for these kids now to be constantly bombarded by images affects the brain. I read an article recently where the distorted body image can change after only viewing pictures for only a few minutes. Wow. If you keep viewing these uh, images of a, a very kind of underweight individuals, it can distort your own body image. So there's good actually neuroscience research looking at that. Wow. But it is tragic for our young kids who are just, one, comparing, and two, unable to really regulate right. um, their food intake. Yeah. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Dr. James Greenblatt, psychiatrist and author of the book that we are focused on today, titled Integrative Medicine for Binge Eating, a Comprehensive Guide to the New Hope Model for the Elimination of Binge Eating and Food Cravings. In addition to the potentially problematic foods that you mentioned, the MSG, the refined sugar, the gluten and casein for certain individuals. I think we could put most foods that create a problem in a category called highly processed foods, you know, foods that are not nourishing the gut, foods that are providing calories 
empty calories, as we used to say, a lot of calories, but few nutrients. But you talk about other aspects of healing from binge eating disorder. And I want to talk about those because we never used to talk about sleep the way we do now. I recently went to a session on sleep at the Dietetic Association meeting where I loved the way the presenter described it. He said, Americans look at sleep as unproductive time. But really, he said, it is so critical. It is one of the three pillars of health. Tell me about sleep's role in developing disordered eating. Sure. I think one of the things that at least the psychiatric community has woken up to, as you described, that the effects of of sleep deprivation has uh, significant uh, implications uh, for mental health. The mechanism, like lots of health problems are related to inflammation. So by not sleeping adequately or regularly, the body can produce lots of activated immune cells, and that affects brain function, and that in turn can affect our ability to control appetite. So sleep has, sleep deprivation and not sleeping enough has cut across you know, all of our major psychiatric disorders, and including eating disorders, and even something as dramatic as suicide. But it appears that we now understand the mechanism being increased inflammation, which creates lots of neurochemical changes that affect eating behaviors. Mm-hmm. Including the hormones that regulate our appetite and satiety. Do you want to talk about that? Well, absolutely. We have many, many hormones that, that regulate appetite, and I think uh, they're all part of the core of the book because they're all derived from adequate uh, protein, so we can talk about that. But as we dysregulate our sleep, we're affecting some of the uh, important peptides and hormones that uh, regulate appetite and satiety. Similarly, you talk about stress and getting stress under control, and you mentioned the slowdown diet, which... It's so hard in our society when we are, many of us, you know, just trying to keep our heads above water, maybe are working two, sometimes three jobs, trying to balance a family with that. And it's very difficult to keep our stress levels under control, especially when we have so many factors that are causing anxiety or stress in our lives. What do you tell your patients about good stress management techniques? Well, in many ways, so many of our patients have, at least the ones I'm seeing, which are typically those that have failed traditional either psychotherapy for their eating disorders. But I think in many ways, we, we have better stress management programs, our mindfulness programs are now pretty uh, cultural awareness about yoga and lifestyle changes, oftentimes Our patients have tried it and have not benefited. But from some of the nutritional interventions and some of the work that we talk about in terms of regulating appetite, then restarting a mindfulness program or learning relaxation techniques when the intense cravings or for some the feeling of addiction or withdrawal related to food, that then they can utilize some of the programs that are available in, in mindfulness, in meditation and relaxation and yoga. So my goal has been if we can balance the biochemistry, then we're sending them back 
to some of these programs, and mindfulness is an incredible opportunity, and there are great programs out there, and there are plenty of clinicians now to mindful eating, and those are uh, available, but some of our patients have been unsuccessful because of the what I'd call the physiological barriers that have blocked their ability to regulate appetite. Mm-hmm. There was a study that looked at just diet counseling, exercise, and cognitive behavioral therapy. And if I'm remembering correctly, the exercise was one of the most powerful modalities in helping people overcome binge eating behaviors. Second to that was cognitive behavioral therapy. And I'm always looking for ways that people can tweak their lifestyles rather than depending on medications. And so I was really interested in both exercise and cognitive behavioral therapy. And of course, in our society, accessing cognitive behavioral therapy with a therapist is often not covered by our medical insurance. It's oftentimes out of pocket. But exercise is something that people can generally do on their own without needing to enter the whole medical system. Let's talk about those three approaches. Sure. I mean, I think that we have good research now looking at exercise as probably our best antidepressant. And certainly for binge eating disorder, there's also good research. And for those individuals that can make that part of their life, that they're going to feel better. The neurochemistry of what happens after exercise, both short-term and long-term, is profound, as we know. And that's really important. Our entire outpatient program, we have clinics in in three states for binge eating, is a CBD-based model. And cognitive behavioral therapy works. And and as you said, it takes time, energy, and you need trained clinicians. But it is a model where we can help individuals begin to address binge eating disorder. And so, you know, like the three legs in the stool, for me, it's always been trying to regulate diet, as you said, minimize the deprivation, look at any of these physiological patterns, and then engage in the psychotherapy, and CPT is the, the most helpful. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's enough that we can say about exercise, but we're always struggling with individuals, patients who are not motivated or can't get that next step, and the last thing we want to do is make them feel ashamed or bad that they can't work out for an hour like their neighbor. So we're working with and starting working with where our patients are to get them to the point of feeling comfortable around food again. Right. Well, I want to jump into another area that I find so interesting, and I'm jumping around your book, as you can see, but the idea that dopamine is this powerful compound in our bodies And you talk about dopamine being this reward compound. Tell me how it works. Tell me how we become dysfunctional around dopamine and how we can get back on track. Sure. Dopamine is one of the neurotransmitters in the brain. And we need to break down protein to make dopamine. So for dopamine, the the short thing is it's it's our neurotransmitter that is important for pleasure and reward. So our entire brain is set up so we survive so we can reproduce and have more humans to continue our genes. 
So anything that is pleasurable or it's going to help us survive is going to be eating adequately and having sex. So pleasurable activities cause our brain to increase dopamine. In our culture now, anything exciting, if you're excited by skydiving or gambling or other kinds of things, so that reward exciting principle is based on dopamine production in in circuitry in the brain. But I think it's an important time to mention that we do have genetic differences in aspects of this reward chemical. So we have genetic differences in how much we make and how it works in the brain. So that is really important. And so what happens, particularly as you described, eating some of these highly processed foods that taste good and feel good but don't provide much nutrition is the beginning of that trigger for, okay, I get a little dopamine, I want a little more, I want a little more. And then sometimes our brain just kind of gets tired and we need more and more, like any other addiction, to stimulate that reward-pleasure chemistry. You also write that research has shown that there are less dopamine receptors in overweight people. Is that a result of overeating, or did the lower number of dopamine receptors come first? I don't think we know. I think everyone has a different opinion. It might be a combination of both. I mean, clearly we know there are genetics, both in obesity and eating disorders. So is part of that genetic predisposition the amount of these receptors we make? Or there's also these incredible feedback mechanisms in the brain where the body just stops making some of these receptors because they're always kind of creating new proteins and receptors. So we really don't know what's genetic and what's environmental. And I think it's the dance between the two that results in that disordered eating for some individuals. We just have a minute left. Is there anything in particular that you want to bring forth from your book? I think the most important, similar to the question you asked, you know, who do we write the book for, is really for patients that have individuals who've attempted to control some of the, they're out of control eating, if you will. And so that's why we called it the new hope. There is oftentimes biological means to restore eating. It doesn't mean the psychological and the exercise are not a part of the treatment plan, but there are very good treatments available. Well, your book certainly offers hope, and it takes a lot of the victimization away from some of the challenges facing people with these conditions. So I want to thank you for this book and for all of the work you've done in the past. I want to remind our listeners that if you want to learn more about Dr. James Greenblatt's work, you can go to his website. It's www.jamesgreenblattmd.com. And in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to thank Dr. James Greenblatt for his excellent book, titled Integrative Medicine for Binge Eating, a comprehensive guide to the new hope model for the elimination of binge eating and food cravings. And Dr. Greenblatt, I think you would agree with me that as we start the new year and so many people take this idea of now's the time we're going to stop smoking, we're going to stop gambling, we're going to 
go on a diet, we're going to do all of these things all at once. I think that you would probably agree with me that we do not want to encourage people to go down a path that might lead to binge or disordered eating through excessive dieting. Absolutely. We know it doesn't work and it, it certainly makes things worse. So very well said. All right. Well, thank you so much again for being my guest. Fantastic book and a great interview as always. Thank you very much. 